Hi, Jim. Good to have you on the show. Hardy, how are you? I'm <laughs> fine, and you? Fat and sassy, man. I'm, uh, it's six o'clock in the morning here, so the first uh, shot of the floppy <laughs> hasn't quite reached my, my frontal lobe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jim, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please um, tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I am uh, a neuroscientist, a professor in the University of California at Irvine. And our university just got named the top university in the country. Uh, awesome. You know, above, above Princeton and everything. I don't know how that happened because, you know, frankly, we're, we're mostly lazy beach guys here. So I don't, you know, maybe relaxation works. But, you know, so um, for over 40 years, uh, which sort of dates me, I've been a, you know, a brain researcher, neuroscientist, and I've And I work on uh, the connections of the brain and the neurochemistry. I do a lot of biological psychiatry and uh, generally worked on many different areas of neuroscience, which most of my colleagues and the deans and the chancellor don't like because you're supposed to focus. Mm. Very long ago, I was taken by uh, Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake for being a generalist. But he and Leonardo da Vinci, I, I always, as you know, looked up to as being uh, very broad. mass. Yeah. yeah, they refused to really focus. I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing. But anyway, so I'm a kind of a generalist. And uh, I have uh, been married for 50 years. We just had our 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I, my wife wonders, he said, well, who would want to do this? You know, it's like... Uh, it sounds like because, you know, people, especially younger people, think it sounds romantic. But she yeah, goes, does this seem romantic? I said yeah, it's been fun and everything, but it does. But, uh, you know, I've got we've got three children and five grandchildren and we've been dating. We've been dating for. Fifty six years. Oh, crazy. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we were, first dates. we were both 12 years old. We went to a dance together because we both loved to dance and we both uh, loved swimming. We both used to race each other. She was a great swimmer. Mm -hmm. Swimmer, uh, but she's always been very competitive, which is great. And so anyway, that, that's my marital status. I've got grandchildren and, uh, and kind of a family person, you know, and I come from a a, a large Sicilian, half Sicilian family. My uh, yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. Maybe you could speak a little bit about how you grew up before we talk about your research and your book and so on and so forth. So sure. should I just you just want to? Yeah, sure. Continue, please. I'll give you the kind of where my my biases sure. are. I'm a you know my biases are, and I'm I'm an agnostic and I'm a libertarian. So and I'm a scientist. So that that tells you most everything you need to know. To understand mm. but at any rate yeah my background is my uh, grandfather came from sicily when he was 11 years old and he's uh, he lived alone on the streets in new york city you know in little italy and he slept in the in the alleys because uh, you know they, it was very poor then so he came and he lived on the streets and slept on the streets and then he met my grandmother who was came separately from sicily And he met her at a dance because he's a musician. And uh, most of the people in my family are musicians. Many of them are jazz drummers, uh, but also cool. 
Yeah, and I'm the only one. I'm not. I, I, I have none of that. So I'm the only scientist who, who is absolutely dumb about music. <laughs> so this is, I, I presume, is genetic uh, in some way. But uh, so at any rate, that's that's half. The other half are uh, the family are old English, um, you know, from the 1650s. Our My father's family goes back to Charlemagne. We can trace it all because in our family we have a, newspaper editor and another you know, genealogist who traced uh, all the way back. So we've got continuity uh, all the way back in these uh, four major lines from my father's family. And my fa- father's family, there's a lot of uh, people who are either ministers or nuns or priests mm. or criminals. <laughs> so what's the other? That's a great mix. <laughs> you about the brain systems that adjudicate or, you know, are the at the underpinnings of this sort of hyper moral or immoral behavior. Yeah. On the Sicilian side, they're very peaceful. And Mm. uh, uh, as it turns out, even though they were very poor, you know, there's a number of people who are professors and and academic types. So the peaceful academic type uh, is from Sicily and the and the warring type is from England. Go figure, right? You know, you <laughs> and I remember with my uh, my mother read a book about our family, a historical book that came out about the same time I found out something weird about myself, and it was really uh, myself and my family. And she was being a Sicilian uh, gal. She was very happy to tell me about this book that our cousin from New York had found that was just written about my family, our family. But it was my father's side. She was excited because as Sicilians, they always get teased about being mafia, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and they, they are, you know, every Sicilian knows mafia and they have different attitudes about the, you know, uh, mm. protection, protection from the government or protection from the racket. You know, pick, you choose your poison. <laughs> and uh, she was the one that found that book with my cousin about. That other side of the family, the British side, which was really full of uh, lots of scoundrels and very a lot of violent people or irresponsible people. They're, mm. you know, they're those people who are fighters and lovers. I say lovers uh, because I like to have sex with everybody on the other side of the mountain. You know, so it's uh, that kind of group. And you can. And so that's that's sort of that background. And uh you know, it's funny with my mother's family, the Sicilian side, because my grandfather was so poor, lived on the street and everything. Well, he had made a decision. He was a smart guy, but completely uneducated. You know, mm. And he was street educated. And he made a commitment early on when he, when he met my grandmother that he wanted to have a large family. And he wanted to make sure all the daughters, all the girls went to college, which was unheard of at that time. Right. Mm. And in fact, my mother and all of her sisters uh went to college and went to graduate school can you imagine i mean and this is in the 30s and everybody 40s. they were all professionals awesome. and they were re- you know really smart and and it was that side the matriarchal side of my family that i think uh, even though it's not as interesting in terms of all the uh, violence and all those you know those english kings and yeah. scoundrels uh, it was more interesting from an educational point of view and for understanding human nature, I think. Mm. Uh, they were really quick studies. They all had teaching degrees, so they all taught, but then they went into business and, and nursing other things. 
Hmm. So, uh, they had great insight uh, into human behavior and into child development and uh, a good instinct. So it was a very interesting mix. And, and so our family, which was very large, and even my father's side, the English side, was very large, and we all have kept contact. Uh, you know, we love to fight with each other and argue. Uh, I'm going back uh, tomorrow to upstate New York because every year I've been going to the racetrack. I love the horses, probably because, you know, our father and our grandfather love horses, right? Mm. And back, and I started going to the racetrack in 1951. So I started going with my father. So I've never missed a How year. old were you back then? Uh, four. I was born in 1947. Four. I'm 72 now. Yeah. I was, you know, three and a half, four. And I always went with my father fishing into the, uh, you know, to the racetrack and owned horses. Oh. We just love it. So every year I have not missed going back to Saratoga in upstate New York, which is a famous old racetrack, Hippodrome, you know, in um, in New York. And it's uh, so I go back and I've gone back every year. But I'll be with all my brothers, my sister, my cousins, because it's, you know, it's a big uh, uh uh goat rodeo back there and so <laughs> we still get together and it's been the same you know i've had a blog uh, we didn't even call it a blog at the time since 1978 and so oh, you've been an, an early adopter here <laughs> yeah and it's been a continuously running blog of people many probably about 15 of the same people so tracking their thoughts and, and everything over the um over the decades to see if there's any evolution about in terms of emotions, political or religious affiliation, all of that. And so I, and I've got records of, of all of it. So they've been part of that along with about 50 other people, you know, it's a private blog and, and, uh, but we have people in the military. We have people who are priests and, and rabbis and a lot of scientists and, and un, uneducated people and, a lot of people in jazz and science. So it's a kind of a mixed group to see the evolution of thought about of people and a, and a group. Mm. Well, that's just fun. And um, so uh, even though I'm an individualist, I, you know, I am, I am a libertarian politically. I, I am a group person and I've always, you know, worked in groups too, because they're not contradictory. Mm, yeah. In nationalism and internationalism are not really contradictory things. It's, it's only the negative aspects that make them different, not the positive aspects. And, uh, and they seem to be hardwired, too, as it turns out, that your sense of empathy and four kinds of empathy are kind of hardwired and genetically based in the brain. So it's kind of interesting that way. And um, so at any rate, I became, even though you didn't ask the question, I might as well answer <laughs> go ahead <laughs> question uh, you know I became interested in science pretty early on I, I remember being very interested in the, in the mind when I in uh, uh, like any kid you know and, and morality and how come? how that. come well when I was uh, very small when I was about two years old a year and a half the first memory I have every night is when I went to sleep, you know, as you go to sleep, you go into a twilight sleep, sleep. it's pre-sleep, and in that twilight sleep, I would always have my eyes closed, awake, but really ready to sleep, and I'd see this kind of shimmering blue light uh, that would 
uh, over the period of about 30 seconds collect into this white blue ball of light like, mm. a, like a, about that big and mm. it would come zapping right at the middle of my forehead and it would hit me like a ping and it and it, it, it would hit this is your first memory first memory yeah I, the second memory is quite completely different but the first memory uh is that and it would hit me and it felt infinitely large like all the weight of the universe was hitting me right here it would go ping but it was as light as a feather at the same time and uh it was always something that i had going to sleep and i can draw that up at any time now and it's a really wonderful feeling and so uh there was that part that was you know it, you know, to this day, I do sleep research, a lot of sleep and dream research. Mm. And dreaming is the virtual reality machine in the brain and everything. So those sleep states, uh, I started writing down all my dreams in high school and college. And I remember a lot of my dreams. So it's a whole life of, of dreams, but it starts with that vision. Um, and I can get it now. I go into my jacuzzi in the morning and I can sort of close my eyes and I can bring that same ball of light in. I don't meditate, but it's, a, I guess, a form of meditation. Mm. And uh, so I, I had that, but I went through in my development a series of um, different, I, you know, odd sorts of psychological things. Like all kids have different ones. And What kind of things? Well, uh, I, I was, when I was growing up, starting when I was about uh, nine or ten, I was I started developing OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and it became by the time I hit 12, 13, 14, a form of it called hyper religiosity or scrupulosity. And it's a kind What's of that? OCD. Well, it's it's that scrupulosity is a form of OCD, which is hyperactivity, part of the prefrontal system of the brain where you uh you have obsessions and compulsions and people have different ones some have uh, fears and some have uh, different things they have to do like tap something three times every mm. morning there's these wash your hands all the time wash your hands all the time and there's you know two forms of it one is regular obsessive compulsive disorder is that you understand and you know that they're crazy compulsions and ideas Mm. which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder you think it's okay and like oh fuck so personality disorders uh, including psychopathy and uh, histrionic personality disorder all these personality disorders are different because the person believes that they're true and good you know this is the correct way of thinking whereas people with just the disorder know that they're crazy but they can't control them It's, mm, it's, big difference, yeah. A big, big difference. It's different. It's a yeah. huge difference in understanding psychiatry and psychology of somebody too, because sometimes people don't understand what they're doing is quite crazy, and other people mm. can't stop it, you know. And um, so, it, at any rate, uh, having this, I was always very. Uh, it started out when I was nine or ten as a. Uh, I was fixated on being fair to all parts of the universe. That is, I, I had to capture ideas of the universe so that the left side of the universe and the right side, I spent as much attention on both sides of the universe and then the front of me and back of me universe. So it was being fair to the symmetry and the perfection of the universe. That's the kind of idea I had. And then I was, as I 
uh, you know, I became uh, trained as a Catholic, and then by the time I hit my confirmation at 12 years old, which for for a Jewish guy would be the bar mitzvah age, you know, mm-hmm. that first age of sort of awareness. Uh, and I became very uh, fixated on being a perfect, having perfect ideas. Mm. So I almost, you know, I can't remember sinning, to give you an idea. It's not because I'm good, it's just because I'm, you know, I was, I was kind of psycho. <laughs> but I beca- in New York, I became, I was uh, awarded uh, and then met Nelson Rockefeller, or Governor Nelson Rockefeller, because I was a Catholic boy of the year in New York. Now you. Mm. How crazy you have to be to be Catholic boy of the year, or Lutheran boy of the year, or Jewish boy of the year, and but that's what I had. And really, <laughs> that sounds and, crazy. Yeah. yeah, and um, and so I was very, very well behaved. And for example, I started dating my my first girlfriend at sixteen. I would never think of touching her. We would kiss, but touching her body or any. No way, because it was immoral, you know. And I had to fight that for several years, and uh, and, and, and but that was part of this uh, OCD. It's not part of being a little boy at all. I don't think. But at any rate, I had that, and that it's one of these disorders that can go away as you get older. So largely, it faded away by the time I got it was eighteen or nineteen in college. Mm. Uh, and I had, but I had to try to sin. It was it was difficult. I mean, one time I had to try to steal something, so I stole an old rusty barrel for one night and then brought it back. See, that was stealing to me. But I had to. <laughs> and you brought it back. That's so awesome. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we uh, we you know I had to like steal cars, but I'd always bring the cars back full of gas and simonized and waxed. <laughs> And, um, so even though I did bad things, they were always in a, this context of like I had to cognitively, forcefully, willfully try to sin. Okay, and that was that was. That was and like, you had a hard time trying to. Yeah. Oh, it was the hard. See, some kids had. Oh, my friends had a hard time keeping away from drugs, keeping away from being a, a, a scoundrel sexually, or stealing things. I, I was the opposite. I had to try to do this and the person who helped me and it was in my first year of college at the end i uh, became friends with one of the priests i went to catholic college in, in vermont st michael's and it was an edmundite school it's the only edmundite school there is and these guys were always getting into trouble they were the ones that there were the civil rights marches in the united states in the 50s and 60s you know like in the south in south those the priests those were our professors and and so there was a lot of civil disobedience with these guys, and uh, but that's who we were brought up with, and they're always getting excommunicated because we were, this is a wild group. But one priest who I became friends with, my English teacher, he was a great guy, and um, he said, "You do not need any church." He says, "You got to get out." And so I gave him at eighteen, I gave him my last confession, and I left the Catholic Church. He says, "You got to get out of here." He says, this is the worst thing for you. And he did. So a priest helped did me. Did you really say it? The Absolutely. priest. Absolutely. That's how <laughs> hip this guy was. That's how insightful and a, a humanist this guy was. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds de- like. Yeah, the very definition of a humanist. The priest yeah. being a Catholic. And so 
and so I grew up around some interesting cats, you know. But mm. during this whole period, growing up from the time I was 12 onward, 11, 12, I always had adult, usually the fathers or either priests or rabbis or adults, psychiatrists in the neighborhood or, you know, parents, fathers, parents of my, my good friends. And they would always say to me, usually one every one or two years, they'd say, there's something really evil about you. And this was in the face of not me not doing anything at all. Mm. But, but there was something in my eyes or something, and I still get this from all sorts of people. I, even though, uh, and they always said this, and that there was something very dark about me. And, and it was quite interesting, and I always just laughed it off. I said, there's nothing dark about me at all. And uh, but at any rate, that was that's been a constant feature. And my mother told me my mother just died last year at 102. Uh, she just couldn't let go. All the Sicilian women in our family lived to be 100. She, she lasted, lasted the longest, 102. And uh, and it was a very bright, interesting woman. But toward the end, she started to tell me, she says, well, you know, I was very worried about you when you were going through puberty. And I had to tell your teachers that. There's a dark part of him that you have to keep him busy all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so I was a, uh, uh, a lot of very good athletes in my family, really good athletes. I was not one of them, not no music, and I was, but I played, you know what I mean? And so I was uh, played American football, and I was a wrestler, a competitive wrestler, and uh, also competitive skiing, you know, downhill racer. And I loved speed and loved it in cars. I loved it in horses and I loved it skiing. And, and uh, at any rate, and and also I was a competitive swimmer and in track and field. I did shot put and, you know, javelin. and A lot and of sports, yeah. Lots of sports. But my it turns out my mother told my teachers, said, keep this guy busy all the time. Because he gets mm. all this when I was about, go, about 11 and 12 when I went into a very funny period of, of, you know, I wouldn't talk to anybody and I built a boat in the summer, which was weird for a kid at that age to just build a boat yeah. and, and just not talk. But to sounds me. fun. <laughs> oh yeah. But then when I was done, I just let it go. You know, it was like, I don't, I remember every point of that, but she took it as one of several hints to tell my teachers always to keep me busy. And so I was always did that. I was, you know, joined the band. It's somewhat musical, but not really. And then um, student government. And I was always busy through high school, college. And to this day, and, and I, I have to keep busy or I do get into trouble. I really do. Really? Why is that? What? Well, well why is it? I, I well, I, you know, after going through a, a lot of psychological, psychiatric testing, you know, if you're a university professor in a, in a psychiatry department and you, you know, have a degree in psychology when you're very young, too, uh, a lot of your colleagues test their other colleagues and you know, their students. So you're, you're always involved in these psychiatric tests because your colleagues are doing studies, right? Mm, yeah. Also, after... Uh, I found out from my my biology, my PET scan, my MRI, my genetics, that there was something really wrong fundamentally. That is the my biology, funky. And as part of that, and this just recently, you know, over the past decade, when I found this out, uh, that 
uh, so I'm being tested. One psychiatrist who tested me said that, uh, he said, this patient, me, has all the uh, ideas and urges and dreams and thoughts of a full-blown psychopath. He just never acts them out. So my whole, mm. well, my dream world and my thoughts and when I'm just sitting doing nothing are very, very psychopathic. But I, mm. I don't act it out. And he thought this was just, he said there was one other person in his career that had something like that, but not the severe. And so there was, and somehow I exuded this too to some professional. That's why probably these professionals growing up would always say, and to this day would say, there's something really evil about you. And I said, mm. I'm a regular, I'm a regular guy, certainly. And, a good, and, and so probably that was a reflection. That was his professionally what he said. So it was, you know, it was a, um, I, I guess an interesting facet of, very interesting well, facet. Yeah. But I, but I think you, you knew it already a little bit, I would guess. Well, you don't, it's not quite, not quite, because you don't mm. really know, you know, especially when you're young and when you're a teenager and until you get older, it's like, are you, how do you know your thoughts are strange, really? Yeah, okay. Because there are people who are eccentrics. That's a diagnosis to be eccentrics. Uh, the most famous one in American literature is Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's, you know, the strange young adult guy played by, uh, by Duval, uh, who was odd, and they thought he must be guilty because he was so strange. He wasn't guilty at all. These are just eccentrics. And, of course, mm. a lot of them are billionaires, and they're the heads of uh, these large <laughs> computer Fortune tech 500, yeah. yeah. Exactly. They're very odd people. And so, uh, you know, there's, you know, being odd, if somebody says to you, oh, you're crazy or something. Well, you, you go, no, I'm not crazy. They People just say, oh, you're crazy. But they you know, they finally saying to me, you're not crazy. There's something really wrong, though. And, <laughs> Even though you seem like a nice, regular guy. And so and growing up, there's a whole group of people, and even beyond that, said this is the nicest guy in the world. And he's a regular guy, you know? I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm really pretty smart, as it turns out. And I'm, you know, and I'm, uh, I grew up at one time, I was good looking and, and quite athletic. So it was very popular and funny. And I always, people always asked me to lead things. I was the. Mm head of our university faculty for years, head of our hospital, University of California, Irvine Hospital Medical Center, the head of the faculty, and the medical school, the head of that faculty. And people, and I never would ask to be that, to run for it. I was always asked to be that for leadership. And it wasn't until in the past 10 years where it kind of made sense because, you know, if you look at the, the list of leaders, and yeah. this was done with the uh, U.S. presidents up till, not including Obama, but a study was done on all the previous presidents, and all their biographers were asked to rate them on all on this PPI, which is the Psychopathic Personality Inventory. And the PPI is not like the hair test for criminals. It's a psychopathic test for normal people to test for their traits. So mm. you have psychopathic traits, but not be a categorical clinical psychopath. Mm, yeah. 
can have traits of depression or schizophrenia or autism. Being disagreeable, yeah. Yeah, you know, it doesn't mean you categorically hit the threshold, but you can still have traits. And so this was done for the U.S. presidents. And uh, it, it turns out that the highest uh, psychopathic ratings of U.S. presidents were for the most popular ones, the ones that were the people thought were the had those leadership skills. Especially wouldn't have thought that, yeah. JFK, FDR, Bill Clinton, you know, these very lovable, likable, love you, baby. Charming, yeah. And, and people, and even Obama, you know, the people fall for this sort of charm. They just, they want to be, people want to be seduced rather really than be led, as it turns out. And mm. have seduction. And it turns out a lot of these guys were seducers of women, of young women, too. And, and uh, were complete scoundrels. But people still vote for them, even though they know that they're, you know, basically just using them for power and sex. So, you know, so the psychopathy rating, uh, probably our most psychopathic uh, president uh, was Bill Clinton. He has the most psychopathic trait. He's, I love you, baby. I love you. You know who loves you. (laughs) And people still fall for it, you know. And and people bought the story, right? (laughs) People still do, you know, they fall uh, you know, Hollywood stars and everything. They're just awful people. Uh, but they, you know, they have this charm and glibness. And they talk fast and very The fun. energy, yeah. That whole thing. And that's where the psychopaths are. They're not these snarling, cruel, evil, you know. Mm-hmm. That, those are not and that, that's a big misconception, I guess. Oh, completely. Yeah. The biggest one. That's why people keep getting fooled. That's why women keep getting fooled. You know, so why do I keep marrying assholes, jerks, and people are saying, you know, I get this, Chris, I've had thousands of people email me on this, of course, and a lot of them are young women who want to know about this, especially like, especially millennials. Now. This guy I'm, is so charming, so cute. cute. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I said, okay. I said, I don't know who he is, but I'll tell you, let me give you a story. <laughs> and it's, it's not a morality play. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but even older women will fall for it until they usually hit about 50, then or 40. Mm-hmm. Then women stop, you know, falling for these same jerks. Uh, they become, they grow up, I guess, and, and they realize what's going on. And but there's so many guys who understand that women want to be seduced, they want to be charmed, they want yeah. to breed with, they we agree with. And you know, it's uh, you know, for my colleagues, for academic women, the easiest way to get in their in their pants is to agree with them politically. You just agree with them, and they just fall in love with you. It's just amazing. So even... <laughs> Dating <laughs> tips here. <laughs> the educated academic women will fall for it all the time, too. It's just amazing. But anyway, uh, it's a quite interesting to watch. Yeah. So, so um, basically, how can we, or our listeners, how can we spot those people? Because I think it's like really, really hard to spot a psychopath or, or somebody with those tendencies when they are so charming and so nice and they know exactly what you want to hear. And yeah. First thing is to understand what is inside their head naturally. And mm-hmm. people with personality disorders, what are called cluster B. These are the pernicious predatory personality disorders of psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline histrionic personality disorder. These are the cluster Bs, and these are the ones who are predators. 
And what they generally have in common to one degree or another, especially psychopaths and uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder, they have a kind of empathy. There are four kinds of empathy. First of all, you can break it down by uh, along one axis. One axis at one end is emotional empathy. And this mm. empathy is what people usually think and want for, you know, they want to make an emotional empathy or a best friend. Emotional empathy is like, I know and feel what you're feeling. Mm. It's, I feel your pain. I feel your joy. And usually you want that in your best friend, uh, usually one of your siblings at least, and, and, uh, and in a mate, you know, mm. it, it, or, but usually a best friend. And, and mates can be best friends too. But there's that I, I, I absolutely feel what you're feeling. That's emotional empathy. The other kind along that axis, if you draw a double-headed arrow, that's one is emotional empathy at the opposite end is cognitive empathy, which is I don't feel your pain or your happiness, but I understand it. See, I know. Mm, and uh, Also a huge difference, yeah. Huge difference. And so in these people... Uh, uh, it's a normal thing, but it's the one that psychopaths have. And I just so they understand what you're feeling, but they don't feel it themselves. So they use that to manipulate you. So when they meet you, um, uh, they're immediately trying to see how, what you're feeling, what you react to, and what your weakness is, your emotional weakness. And they will soon find that out and then play to that weakness. We'll find out what happened to you. And, and that's what they're looking for. What it seems like is that they're so interested in you. And a lot of women will respond like, he's such a good conversationalist because he's listening to me. Well, the reason mm -hmm. he's to do is to get inside your head to see that you're vulnerable, to manipulate you. Not maybe this time, but mm -hmm. yeah, setting you up. And so it's a, you know, that's the first thing to understand. Now, the other disorder, if you will, and, uh, and or variant is uh, autism. The autistics, they have emotional empathy, but they don't have cognitive empathy. They don't know what you're feeling, but somehow they can work a room. You know, they have a, they do have a feeling for it. And so it's they're almost opposites. So it's psychopaths and people with autism are kind of opposites in that way. And, uh, and so at any rate, uh, there's that type. Now, there's the other type of empathy, the other axis. They're kind of orthogonal, like a cross. Yeah. So this other one is empathy in-group, in-group empathy in versus out-group. Now, the ultimate out-groups are the honest Marxists, or the honest people, the Gaia people, the Greens, the honest Greens, or, or people like Mother Teresa. Or, mm. or in, Dalai Lama, yeah. Dalai Lama, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, and everything. And these people want to save all the children, the people of the world. Uh, but as it turns out, they have very little use for individual people. You know, if you if you heard uh, Nelson Mandela's memorial, his daughter got up and said, basically, uh, this was a great man, but you did not want to be his daughter. And, you know, in, 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 uh, wives and children said the same thing. This is a great man, but you didn't want to be married to him. You didn't want to be his child. Mm. And Teresa was very similar. She was a, a great humanitarian, but prickly, prickly, not very nice one-on-one -on -one at all. Very and, interesting, yeah. Well, this is outgroup, and this also seems to be biologically, genetically wired into people, so people are naturally this way. It's not good or bad. Um, 
The other is in-group. Now, the ultimate in-group person would be the, would the complete individualist, or if you go all the way with no feeling, would be a psychopath or a narcissist, you know. But, uh, but a lot of people are in-group, which means that the decisions they make and the, where they, what they care about is their family. Or they're mm, the close loved ones, yeah. A little bit larger, it could be tribal too. A sense of tribe is more in the middle. So in the yeah. middle is a sense of tribalism, and then a little further in the middle of, would be nationalism. So at one end is internationalism, then nationalism, then tribalism, then you know extended family, then core family. And people can try to act like any of these in all kinds of empathy, when everything's good in their life, you know, mm. and they're happy and they're good. But whenever any pressure is on, they tend to go snap to this, what they're basically wired at from, from birth, really, uh, is you, they become to do that. And that's how they'll vote, too, you know. So the, they may seem like they're, I love the whole world and everything, but uh, and this is probably why uh, Trump won. Now, I was asked to give a talk to a CEO group, it was an international finance group. They met in Aspen and they wanted me to give their yearly talk on uh, the biological psychiatry of personality and politics and, you know, investing too, you know, all these mm. things. So I gave it, but in that talk, and that was in the summer of 2016. So in, in that talk, I, I, I talked about different kinds of empathy like this. And I said, because of strain, social strain in the United States right now, and some financial strain, that people would snap toward their natural tendency, which would be, for a lot of people who haven't spoken up, will secretly go into the voting booth and be quite, uh, will vote what's good for their family only. And mm. in group, and I said, that's what Donald Trump will uh, appeal to, and he will win. And he was down by 20 points. So these people were like, crazy. But I said, based on the bio biology of this and the psychiatry of this, that Donald Trump should win, even though he's down by 20 points and it seemed impossible. Well, the, so you already knew it beforehand, just well, by looking at the yeah. psychiatry of this. And and um, and the chairman of the board of this was a very famous uh, Democratic politician, a senator in the United States. He was, and he goes. He said, first of all, he came up to me after the talk. He was right. He says, now I know why I always vote for assholes. And two, he says, that's an interesting thing. And he, you know, he contacted me after Trump won. He goes, you were right. You know, it was like, I said, well, you could just do it by the, you know, knowing the biology of this or the biological, what we call a biological psychiatry of this, of people. And so when, you know, this is how I, I or maybe other neuroscientists, people in psychology, would look at politics too, you know, the same sort of thing, why people are certain ways. None of these things are good or bad. So nationalism, internationalism, but the people are wired to have different affiliations and it probably has a very important survival value for the species. And I, and I think what might be a value for people who are, you know, not scientists who might be listening here is that you know, not only are these these different types of people and their genetics not good or evil or bad, uh, mm -hmm. even they not like it, you know, because it's not you. It's not different than you, so it must be bad, but it's not. And it's part of being a normal person. But also that what seems to be good for you as a person or for individuals are usually terrible for the species. 
Mm. The species is usually terrible for you and your family. And, and so, for example, you'd say, well, why is, are the traits of psychopathy good or of yeah. And there's guys who will have sex with everybody all the time. They just try to have sex with everybody. These are the guys throughout history who go over the mountain and try to have sex with all the women uh, that they don't know on the other side of the mountain. Now, this turns out to be terrible for families and the tribe, but it t- it's great for humanity, for the species, because it mixes genes up. So there's mm. what seems to be terrible is good for the species. And so the same thing with violence. The violence, uh, you, you know, there's each complex adaptive behavior of humans. Let's say there's 15, there's really about 350, but 15 major ones. But there's about 15 to 20 gene forms, the alleles, the forms of genes that determine those uh, things like violence or empathy or you know, extroversion, different personality traits. And yeah. every, every uh, trait is determined by about 15 to 20 or more of these genes. So violence or aggression is not determined by one warrior gene. There's about 15 or 20 of them that interact. And your temperament depends on the exact combination of these that you inherit from your mother and your father. If you get all 15 or 20, like I did for my parents, you're extremely aggressive, extremely competitive to the point of being a jerk, you know, which I, you know, I can be that because I'm extremely competitive and mm. I have to win. I have to beat my grandchildren at games. That's that. It's that. And, and they're that way, too. They it turns out they have the same genes. So they're all. <laughs> so we're happy with it because we're all that way. You get along together. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, it's like. You, you know, nobody lets anybody win, you know, <laughs> so we also tend to be libertarians and and, and, and capitalists. And it's very natural. It's like dog. Mm. dog. It's a very natural thing for us. And so we don't have a conflict in our family at all with us. Our extended family. But everybody around us always feels hurt all the time. They're emotionally upset because they were too competitive and all this stuff. And yeah. But anyway, yeah. so these things are kind of wired and. You know, it's it, it's it's interesting because a lot of it's just the luck of the draw. You know, mm. you can't choose your parents, and you can't choose the genetic alleles that you inherit from them, and by random chance end up becoming you. And it's right done at a moment, at, right at conception and after conception, that you could be anything. You, a lot of times, you're not anything like your brother and your sister. You know, you're genetic. Yeah. Like them, but it doesn't mean that your behavior is all like it. So you're not, you know, um, and so it's a matter of the luck of the draw. And you know, the other thing is that even though extreme forms of these normal personality traits, you know, aggression, for example, and lack of certain kinds of empathy, etc., uh, all these different traits, even though they're normal, uh, can combine to make you unlikable, even though you're normal. So there are many normal people. With what makes it, what seems to make this abnormal, pathological, and pernicious, and is the basis of personality disorder, is these genetics that give you tendencies to be, let's say, violent or you know, be very cold in terms of emotional empathy. There's a whole series of these uh, traits that if you are born with these, and very early on you're abused or you're abandoned, this is the recipe for disaster. Because this then changes the regulators of those genes. 
So they're permanently switched on and off. So that means your natural behavior is never regulated. People who are aggressive, mm. they're not aggressive all the time. Or, you know, they're, they're just aggressive, you know, usually. Uh, when something terribly bad happens. Yeah. yeah. It's very useful to have somebody defending you who can really be very aggressive. Right. But they're they're like this. They're triggered all the time. And that mm. is the regulators of the genes are a small group, a methyl group, which is a carbon with three hydrogens on it, a very simple chemical compound that stress, severe stress early on between birth and two years old especially, of abandonment or abuse, that releases cortisol, a stress hormone from your adrenal gland, and that quickly gets up into your brain, into the social brain, that is part of the temporal lobe and prefrontal cortex, that determines your interactions, social interactions with people. And it's and it those release methyl groups, which then attach to the promoters and inhibitors of these genes. And it turns them on forever. Mm, now, so as they are like constantly stressed out exactly, and get angry like really, well, really quickly. Yeah, there are times. And that's what the basis of the pathology. So it's not that, but you have to, seems that you have to have the genes and the abuse, those two together at an early time, key timing. And those three are like a three-legged stool. And the, mm. the way I came up with this idea uh, back in uh, years ago, I mean, it was like probably 12, 13 years ago when I came up with this theory, and it turns out to be, looks like it's, turns out to be, looks like it's true, uh, it was I was watching my mother in the backyard and she loved to work in the garden. She was sitting on a three-legged stool. And I was trying to figure out, because I'd just gotten back my PET scans and my genetics that showed that I had all of the, uh, the brain connectivity and the genetics of a psychopath, full-blown psychopath. But I was a psychopath, and I couldn't understand why. And I was looking at her. I said, what is the reason? I have the genetics, and then I had the brain connections. And what's the third thing? And, and then she was sitting on a stool and I said, it's her, you know, it's because it's, I had such a great upbringing. She was the third leg of the stool because uh, she and my father and my aunts and my grandparents, my uncles, I was raised in a great family and they're all very supportive. In part, I got extra attention because my mother and my aunts knew that I was susceptible to trouble, real trouble. And so they were the ones that kept me away from any sort of uh, negativity at all. They're very positive supportive. And that's where I came up with the theory. And, and so I've had that since about 2000, you know, 10, 11, 12, when they figured this out. And, uh, <clears throat> and I wrote a book that included this, uh, this idea of the student stool on the yeah. development of this. And that's the nature-nurture question. And so, you know, I always get the question, what's more important, nature or nurture? And, of course, the answer is yes. It's like, what do you mean? Well, uh, the, the, you need to have, the, the genetics are only really important if you're abused or abandoned. Mm. Otherwise, you're very resistant. And there are many kids, you know, over half the kids, that you know, these are the people, the guys that fall down the stairs, they get kicked, and they wake up and they laugh and they, nothing, nothing affects them. And you have a lot of friends like this that they could have grown up in a terrible environment, but they're not psychopaths or anything. They may like to fight, they may mm. be, but they're not psychopaths. And so the idea is that there are a lot of people who are abused early and who are abandoned who don't have this, you know, mm. 
Uh, so why? Well, it looks like you have to have the genetics and that abuse together at that time. So that's a, I think, a key take-home point. So, so um, Jim, let's talk about the tales, uh, the tales of of uh, psychopaths and narcissists, because um, I think like one big tell is that people can't see your side of the story. They're like very me-centered. And they, they can't really see your side of the story. And um, they tend to all, all be takers and not givers. So um, could you please speak to that? And yeah, what are the tells? Yeah. And, and let's give our listeners something practical here. Yeah. So, so I, I think the tells are, first of all, it's, it's they understand what you're feeling. It's not like mm. they don't feel you. They do. But okay. they don't care. They're using it against you. And so the inability to, to uh, have emotional empathy, okay, they can see what you, you need in here, but they don't feel it themselves, right? Mm. And uh, that's the first thing. But they seem to have it because they use that to seduce you uh, and, to, and, and to quickly maneuver. Uh, and so if somebody seems too sweet and nice and kind, like, He's the only man who ever talked to me. You know, it's like, that's like a warning sign. <laughs> he's the only one who speaks to me and he listens to me. He said, well, he's setting you up is what he's doing. That doesn't mean that every nice guy isn't a nice guy, but it turns out to be a big warning sign, actually. Somebody's too nice, too fast, and they quickly, you know, they move ahead. Now, some psychopaths and narcissists <laughs> will groom people for months. They'll have four or five women, let's say. They're thinking long term. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, not all of them are damaged. You know, some that are damaged are so impulsive they can't do that. But the ones that are smart and not damaged by drugs, alcohol, and beaten, the ones that kind yeah. of a natural psychopath, uh, they will have different uh, people lined up to get money from or get sex from or to use in some way. They may have five, six, seven, eight at one time. So they can be uh, very patient with any particular one. So they can meet you at a bar and be nice to the point that I want to meet that guy again. So they don't go mm. after that way. And they may, they may groom you for weeks or months, many days or even sometimes years, because they got many people working. It's, think of it as a business deal, okay? Yeah. Up, it's a bit, to them, it's just the business of being a predator. And uh, so that's what psychopaths are. They're intraspecies predators, mm. predators on others. So they know how to come in like uh, sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. And uh, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, also, when they talk, they will tend to talk a, too much about their own visceral needs themselves. Mm. They often get really... That's a good one here. Yeah. You know, they they talk about their guts in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable. Many people feel uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's like talking to the heterosexual guy who's always talking about homosexual acts in very funky ways. Like, it's creepy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, homosexuals talking to each other that way, it doesn't seem creepy. But heterosexuals, yeah. it, does, it seems creepy and predatory for some reason. So... You know, it can be that sort of thing, which is inappropriate sorts of allusions to their own visceral uh, feelings and sense, which are the creeps that way. Um, they, 
you know, different psychopaths will tend to, uh, uh, when they talk, you know, if you look at a Mediterranean talk, they'll talk like, they'll talk like, hey, hey, what are you doing? What are you, forget about it, everything. You know, you'll see a lot of, like, uh, Italians and Jews talking with their hands like this. It's not that. They tend, psychopaths tend to talk with their hands up higher in their body. They tend yeah. to be a bit, you know? I like those people. <laughs> well, yeah, they're great. Yeah, they're great. Wonderful. And, and and so they also they tend to use a lot of personal pronouns you know Mm. it's always uh, a little too much use of i and me not i yeah i and me and not so much we and uh, except the real smart ones know that you're looking for this (laughs) they they think one step ahead to say i or me so some are very clever so i do that i try you know, I, I met with, uh, I was asked to do a <laughs> an interview yeah. of, uh, for a, you know, kind of a hit magazine, I guess. And, <laughs> we won't net mention names here, so. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew that he was a smart guy. He was a young guy, a, a very smart guy, and his father was a famous, very famous rock and roll star. And when I met him at a diner. He didn't want me to meet him at any house because he thought I would make kill him or something. <laughs> so he sat and I and I tried to use all of these tells. So I used a lot of personal pronouns uh, and I also stared at him without blinking the whole time. It's very difficult, you know, because I knew because <laughs> a psychopath can stare at you never never blinking. And that's you know when actors like Anthony Hopkins was told that you know when he played the psychopath. You don't, mm. right? You're, Hannibal Actor never blinks. And yeah. so I, all of these on these, and he gave me this, so he, he wrote it up. Uh, and, uh, it was just, I mean, it was really funny. He said he did all this stuff that psychopaths do. Well, we became friends after that. And then, uh, and, and then he and his father called me to be, uh, to, to write the last chapter of their book called, mm. and this is Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons, you know. What was the, 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 the book called? 27. 27. It's about the, the, the myth of the rock and roll star who commits suicide or dies of drug overdose at 27. It's mm. like why did Jimi Hendrix, you know, Jimi why Hendrix, yeah. rock and roll stars, a whole bunch of them. George Cobain, yeah. Diets 27. So I wrote a book on that. And so I wrote the last part on brain development, on um, when people are susceptible uh, throughout their life, in, in these different uh, periods of development, uh, brain development, when they're most susceptible to problems, psychiatric problems, suicide and everything. But I had to start by saying that the, the uh, 27, the myth of 27 is a myth. Most musicians commit suicide or die at 57, not 27. So you should have called it 57. But nonetheless, uh, in there, um, I... Uh, I talked about this. It was the same discussion. I used the same thing. I, I was an advisor, an advisor for about ten years to the Pentagon and to the, uh, you know, Department of Defense, and worked with Jim Mattis's recent committee, and told them, try to school them on brain development. And I said, look at the, the worst thing, unless you can test everybody genetically for their uh, susceptibility to suicide and PTSD and violence. Uh, unnecessary, not the violence you want. If you if you can't spend the money to do the PET scanning and the genetic, 
and said, what you have to do is not have any, any, any guy or gal in combat until after they're 25. Because that's, 25 is when the different parts of the frontal lobe finally mature so that the cognitive and emotional parts then become in balance. And that doesn't happen. And I, you know, I had given this in numerous talks in, in Europe, too. And a, a, a rock group in Spain heard me and they said, can we use your quote that, you know, n- nobody should ever go to, uh, to battle, to war till after they're 25. And they used that in their, some of their songs and their website. I said, but the other shoe to fall on that is, on the other hand, they should probably not be able to vote until you're 25. You know, there's always the dark side of this. And, uh, but at any rate, the, uh, after working with them uh, about uh, four months ago, the, um, the Department of Defense announced that they were considering this idea of not having any combat. Infantry until after 25, so it may have worked. So these have practical views for all sorts of things in life, but uh, for, for the practicality, uh, the, uh, the full development of a psychopath uh, that really starts early. I started my training with a pediatric neurologist who was a good psychiatrist too, who said that he could see a child at a year and a half or two years old, that early, that they're going to be a psychopath just by the way they looked at people, the coldness of the way they looked. And uh, so my first paper on this, I uh, one of the chapters in this book was, was my two-year-old granddaughter is a psychopath. It's about this, you know, most kids act psychopathic in a mm. sense that they don't care what you want. It's all about them. You know, we should just be happy that they, they weigh 20 pounds and not 200 pounds. And we all be in a lot of trouble because they yeah. they look through you. They go, but young psychopaths develop start developing early, but they really become that uh, in their mid teens and late teens. That's when mm. and and really flourishes at that time when that part of the brain uh, becomes in balance or imbalanced with the other part between yeah. eight and twenty years old. So the um, so it's hard to tell them, though. The average person is very hard to tell a young psychopath uh, until they're a bit older, you know, and you can't really diagnose them, officially diagnose them, until they're later in their teens. Um, mm. You know, a lot of them have oppositional defiant disorder. They're very defiant. Uh, they are hypersexual. But just because a kid has that doesn't mean they're psychopaths. That's the problem. Yeah. They may have those traits. So... The practical take-home message is, if you look at all these individual traits, both for kids, what to look for, and also for adults, what to look for, people can have the individual traits but not be that thing, you know, mm. categorically. That's why this practical thing, there are people that talk with their hands up high. Uh, there are people who have no emotional empathy, who are completely normal. And in fact, here's, here's the twist on this. There are people like, not just psychopaths, but normal people who have no emotion empathy, but they are the biggest givers of, of charity. Mm. And so uh, I work with the, the heads of very large charitable organizations. One was the first PhD student uh, uh, of, the, of the Holocaust, basically, and you know, raising money for that, but also 
uh, one who was the head of about ten, about a hundred charities, and another the head of about fifty large charities, and 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 one who is the, the head of uh, a Peace Jam, you know, and they're up for the Nobel Prize again this year. So these friends of mine, they tell me there's one embarrassing thing because they're all liberal Democrats. So the one embarrassing thing about being a liberal Democrat is that we don't give any charity. We talk about it all the time, but we never actually give money. He said, and they all told me the same thing. And uh, and they said the people who give it are conservative Republicans who have no, you know, the people who say, I feel you, and they cry, and they, they'll see some poor, you know, a baby or something. He said, those people never give money, but they cry about it. And so mm. they very act that, that way. But the people that actually do things are the mm. conservative Republicans or the and right-wing people, as it turns out, and it's not just for church. So that was really a surprise, you know. And I, and I'm surrounded by, of course, I grew up, you know, for my whole life around academics and almost all, you know, left-wing, liberal, Marxist, and everything. So I, you know, uh, but I, you know, I work in both worlds. Yeah. You know, and uh, just to answer a question you didn't ask, I know I did not vote for Trump. I told my friends not to vote for him, but nonetheless, the uh, the alternative. Since I know people very, very well who work with the Clintons, that she was about as bad as it comes. Uh, having the Clintons in there was a worse choice for sure. Um, mm. I'm not, you know, I, I, but nonetheless, I'm not a Republican or everything. But you know, the I'm, I'm giving you the, the the truth as my liberal Democrat uh, put, you know, friends who are professionals in the business say: uh, if you want charity, if you want illimasinary, if you want Real action. Do not go to a liberal or a Democrat. They simply do not give anything. But they talk about it and they act it. will cry on it. But, so that's another curious thing, that there are people who seem cold, right, and who have no emotional empathy and cold, but they end up being, even though they're kind of cold emotionally and don't, are not empathetic that way, are do the most for the world, as it turns out, the most for charity. Uh, uh, the other ones tend to be people that you can just have a good cry with. So I guess, the, you know, um, and I'll give you some personally, right? Growing up, um, I had a lot of female friends. I still have a lot of female friends. And, you know, my wife's, who's then my girlfriend, all of her girlfriends always used to come to me, and they still do, for advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, because I never cry over any story. I never, and I try to tell the exact truth about the best way to proceed you know the the cognitive empathy and instead of using it against them i try to use it for them mm. i you know the other way would be to have them cry on my shoulder and then try to have sex with them which i did <laughs> and so and that's around so you know if you if you try to help people and you, then you don't try to have sex with them then you have you, you develop a reputation but then you're driven crazy by all your wives girlfriends who want to <laughs> no, but they're great. But anyway, it's um, it, it, it's 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 you know. So it's not that I'm a a nice guy. It's because I'm just wired to do mm, that. Yeah, makes but sense. Warning sign: if somebody is really, really seems to cry, care, and they cry with you, and they're doing, chances are it's not true, or if it's not true, it's not helpful. That is, they mm. make. They're not going to really do anything for you other than let you cry on your shoulder. Very, very counterintuitive, yeah. Extremely counterintuitive. That's why people, that's why that uh, that really well-known Democratic senator, when they like, you know, 
the chairman of the board that I talked to, uh, he said, it's all counterintuitive. He says, but it's true. He says, we keep voting for, and we want people to lead us who are assholes or users. We keep, mm. falling, you know, and, and he says, all the women, you know, we keep falling for jerks, complete jerks are going to use them because they are very, I love you, baby. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> You're so sweet. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, but it's funny. If women get, even when they get older, they fall for it. But even though they know what you're doing, they'll still go for it because they just want to hear it. Yeah, because they want to hear it, I guess. <laughs> so they'll actually do it, almost like taking a drug. You know, it's an addiction of just talk sweet to me for tonight. You know, you can have play. So, um, and so those are the sorts of things that are practical. Um, it's, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I'm an advisor to some funny groups, you know, not only the Pentagon, but also uh, for some years of work with the Vatican or work with the arts and technology group on, you know, how to transmit, you know, this you know, sense of real empathy. And I had to go through these different kinds of empathy. Mm. But if you, you know, uh, you know, Christ probably had uh, more of this outgroup uh, cognitive empathy. You know what I mean? More than the other kind, even though people wanted it. But anyway, uh, but also I, I, I work with a group that tries to overthrow governments. OK, uh, dictatorships. And so I work and we don't I don't put this on my CV. Uh, and, but at any rate, uh, we meet a couple of times a year. And this is for um overthrowing dictatorships around the world, but we're all nonviolent. So we try to do it peacefully, right? Without any armed insurrection. So we work with the new people coming in who might be the new leaders, part of a new leadership group. And sometimes my job is to go out and get drunk with them the night before at the meetings, you know, just to, to get them drunk. And after a few hours to read them, to see if they're worse psychopaths than the dictator that's already in there. And it's a, it's a very fun sort of job, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an unofficial sort of job I have. But as part of that group, I, I also worked uh, with the, this new uh, series of movies called Dow, D-A-U. Mm. It was this uh, series of films that uh, the city council of Berlin decided not to let us do it. And so we were going to open in Berlin. Uh, this past uh, spring, and uh, but we, but part of it was to build the old Berlin Wall around the venue, the theatrical venue, and the Berlin City Council said we don't want any more walls, no more walls. So we ended up opening in Paris. So it was it opened in Paris, and completely wild. And now we're, it's, I think October we're going to be in opening in London for a couple of months. And it's thirteen films called Dau, D A U, which is named after. Lev Landau, who was the Soviet nuclear physicist who created the Soviet atom bomb. And he, Stalin put them into an institute. And so mm. this filmmaker um, had this you know, vision of creating this institute where we would all live, the actors. So he asked me to come in and act. But as part of this, after we did the, the filming and the editing, it went through six, four editing companies. It took years to do this. Um, brutalizing films, too. I mean, just amazingly brutalizing. Right at the edge. It's about as edgy as you can get, I think. And I work with a lot, I work with a lot of filmmakers, TV and film, and in Hollywood and New York. 
So I work with a lot of writers and, and producers on this, and this is about the wildest thing uh, I think imaginable. It, it's it's like the Truman Show on ayahuasca. I think is what they did. <laughs> that's that, this that sounds fun. Yeah, it's it's an understatement. But anyway, <laughs> it's kind of the Truman thing. Show on ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but part of it <laughs> of the the rollout was we were having meetings in London. And we work with the, uh, the the House of Commons and the House of Lords and the the, um, the Royal Society giving talks and panels. So I was giving talks and running panels. And one was the four guys, including the you know the ex ambassador to the Soviet Union from Germany, mm. from Germany, but also these the four guys who broke up the Soviet Union on dictatorships. I I, I then did a, a talk that ran a panel. The two of us. For this group, it was a closed group. On uh, he was the head of the jihadists in the UK, and he, he went the other way. So he and I talked about the nature of terrorism, the you know the brain of a terrorist, or what we think of the the brain of a terrorist or dictatorship. And I've been doing talks on the minds of dictators for about 15 years, and I've given this talk in numerous places. And so we so part of this doubt thing is is uh, on this and, and uh, how people abuse each other. So I, I try to use practically this biological psychiatric information uh, to use, to look for tells in sophisticated people, okay, mm. who understand this because real good psychopaths um, that are not damaged physically, the brain isn't physically brain damaged, uh, but maybe epigenetically damaged, um, they all the dictators have the same background. Almost all of them, and almost all had were abused or abandoned in their youth. Every one of them, except Pol Pot. I he claims he had a great childhood. I I don't know, but every uh, you know, studied a lot of serial killers. The brains in the lives of serial killers and some pedophiles and other people, and they all have this background and you know the, the same sort of Venn diagram of traits. And so if you know those traits, you mm. may be able to see one or two of them. But you've got to keep in mind, just because somebody shows you a trait, or even two traits. Doesn't mean, yeah. Doesn't mean. So that's why, you know, it's kind of like dangerous knowledge unless you put it into a broader perspective. Mm, yeah. So, the, you know, for, for the listeners, this is a long answer to your question. I, you know, I apologize. But <laughs> you, you have to have all these questions right, because... Otherwise, people will say, well, here's the list mm. they look for. And a lot of people have those, and, all, and they're not psychopaths. They just are wired with that personality type. They just have the trait. Yeah, just speaking so much about psychopaths. Um, on a school trip, one of my classmates confessed to me, like this was like a, a couple of years ago, um, everybody was smoking weed and not me, of course, but um, um, <laughs> we, we were talking about this and that, like nonsense, silly stuff. But um, then he suddenly confessed to me, and this was like a nerd, like really introverted guy, really nice guy, always helping everybody, always making sure everybody gets along. Like yeah. you, 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 you could never tell. So um, and he confessed to me and he said, you know, Hardy, um, I I often think i i really often think about killing other people and i was like 
what the fuck did you just say to me? So, yeah. and, and, and this guy was like 18 years old, really nice kid, really nerdy, playing a lot of computer games. Um, the only weird thing I, I've noticed about him was that he was co collecting machetes. So I, I found this like quite weird, right? Like he had a couple machetes and a samurai sword, sword and, and, and stuff like that. And this was like kind of weird, but um, yeah, you could never, like, never, 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 ever, yeah. you would thought this kid was a weirdo or, or like a potential killer or something. So, you know what I had early on is machetes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to. I was very good at making bombs. Starting when I was about 11 years old, I was a great bomb maker. You blow them up because of you know the chemistry. But at that yeah. time. You know, it's in social context. At that time, people, if you made really good bombs and blew them up in the back, you know, yeah. people say, well, he's interested in chemical engineering. It was just true, but now you do it. They put, you know, you, you put it away. And, you know, and I was involved in stealing cars, and I used to organize large groups of kids to drive the police crazy. For me, it was all just fun and games. Now, and, and I have all the thoughts about killing people and all these mm. doing terrible things. I just don't act them out. You know, yeah. so uh, the, the thing is, there's a guy who you'd say, well, he had the signs. And in fact, those adults who really have had a lot of experience with with kids, teenagers, uh, like the priests and the rabbis and the psychiatrists, psychologists, my professors. Uh, who knew me said there's something really wrong with you. That's what they're seeing. See, they're not seeing my behavior, really, which has always been, even though. I was making bombs. I wasn't blowing anything up, right? I mean, just, we're just and I had machetes, but I wouldn't have killed anybody or anything like that. And yeah. so, but the urge is there, but that doesn't mean the behavior is there. Mm, yeah, like like in the like in the classmate of mine. Yeah, yeah. he and had it, the urge, but he wasn't acting it out. So, and and that and so if you have and I bet if you looked at his frontal lobe, his PET scan of his frontal lobe, he'd have he may have the psychopathic turning off of this part of the orbital cortex and frontal lobe above the eyes and that, that part of the temporal lobe around the amygdala, that's turned off, that psychopaths all have that. Yeah. Um, in my case, if you look at my, I have a very hyperactive upper part, like where you wear yarmulke, you know, this upper part. It's called the dorsal prefrontal system. It's very overactive. And that's the part of the brain that tells you not to do things cognitively. It's not, the part of my brain that has to do with morality and this true in the psychopath is turned off so to me i i don't have a sense a good sense of morality um i i understand ethics and, and with this upper sort of uh, executive part of my brain i know the rules and i know what to do and not do and that can suppress any of these urges that i have that i don't think are particularly wrong you know but mm -hmm. you know people consider very and moral, illegal, and unethical. I just don't do it, but it probably has to do with the development of this upper part to suppress these urges, right? These uh, now, if it, if you don't have that and you have this turned off, it's big trouble. There's nothing to balance it, right? There's nothing to balance the urges, which is, um, you know, usually we think of if you look at standard psychoanalytic terms of the id, the ego, and the superego. You know that. And people don't use those terms anymore, but the people know them. And so, yeah, Freud. The, the, the id, you know, the animal drives that you have, 
which also takes care of the housekeeping of your brain and body and the housekeeping of the species, sex and you know, eating and all that stuff, aggression. And that's, you know, in the amygdala, it's a distributed system, but it's centered mostly in the amygdala. And then offsetting that is the orbital cortex, where, which controls impulsivity, but it also seems to be the center of the circuitry of the sense of uh, morality. Mm-hmm. And, so, and this develops very early in children. And that part of the brain develops in the first three, four, five years, so in, in, up to about seven. And so little kids are both characterized, normal kids, by a, a impulsivity, animal behavior, but also extreme morality. So they, they always mm. have this. But that's these two places fighting together. What they don't have is this upper area, and that doesn't really fully form until you're 25 or 30 years old. But it first really comes online when you're about 18 or 19. Mm. And that is able to say, look, you may want to do this, but uh, you look ahead, it's probably not a good idea. You know, you're, you're uh, never going to job, you're never, never going to girlfriend, never get, you know, there's all these things like, don't do that. Not that you want to, but it's a bad idea for your future. It's, it's mm. all the sense of the memory of the future sort of function. And, uh, and so if you look at that, you don't really get that first online uh, balancing until you're about 18 to 21. But that's also when these disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, and the personality disorders, they come online when that part of the brain matures, because that's when the machine is first matured. So you can't break a machine that's not there. And so you don't see these disorders until you're about 18, 20, 21, 25. That's when they come online. Uh, and then the final balancing and then this, this is going to give you hope, Marty. Yeah. You're going to want to go on. Yeah. I, I get, and um, so the real balancing of emotion and executive thought happens when you're about 35, in the mid 30s. That's when you're really a kind of a mature person. Uh, but the place. That's 35. 35. 35. Okay. That's when everything's myelinated and there's the most balance of your emotions and your thoughts. And you're, you know, all these things, that's when you peak, you peak that way. But in terms of the peak uh, sort of ability to handle your emotions uh, and to ha- take them offline, for the most part, for most people, uh, where you have the person who is most in control of themselves <clears throat> occurs between 60 and 70 years old. And that's when the final maturation takes place. Some people, it's in their 70s, most people around 70. That's probably mm. where this idea of the wise old woman, the wise old man come from, because it's probably true in this sense, like they can suppress all of these emotional. Mm. That, that's why older people seem to be like a lot more calm than the average Joe yeah. in your mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah. And also because they run out of testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> so you there's know, that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people grow out of these pernicious personality disorders. Like, uh, psychopaths can just run out of the testosterone urge to damage people. They just run out of energy. So they, they seem to improve in their 50s and 60s. Like, well, I'm not so psychopathic anymore because they just run out of the juice. <laughs> But there is a psychopath. Oh, yeah, guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. But but um, speaking about psychopaths, I just found it like so, so interesting. Like, 
for example, we have said it like multiple times, but it's so hard to tell. It's like so, so hard to tell. So, um, yeah, what what would be your best advice for everyone? Because I know you also did like a lot of research on serial killers. So I would also yeah. like to address that. But um, like what would be your best advice for everybody who really wants to make sure that they um, don't let the wrong people into their lives? So. Right. You know, about 1% of people are full-blown categorical clinical psychopaths. Mm. Okay. And the females do it. 1%. Different. About 1%, 1.5% are clinical, about 1%. And it was always thought that women, there's less, but it turns out now that women are just psychopaths in a different way. That is, they use usually men to do their killing and do their harm. So they'll trade their sex and their companionship so to manipulate, easy to manipulate males to do their uh, killing or abuse. And mm. so it turns out they just work differently. But in terms of borderline people, that is, they're not fully, um, you know, they're not fully psychopathic, but uh, there, there may be five to seven percent, something like that, of people who are nonetheless dangerous enough. So that means that any group, you work in an office with a, you know, with 10 people, the chances are there's a, one rat in there, and, or 100 people, maybe seven rats in there. And... Um, the thing is, the, the borderlines, people like me uh, will always try to, I'm always trying to manipulate people, but I, I am so cognizant. I, I love your honesty, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very nice, as it turns out, but I try, I try to, you know, you know, out myself, because people will recognize me, and they'll say, and I go, yeah, yeah, but I'm always uh, on the make, not to get sex from people, but just to own them for an hour, or two hours, or ten minutes, to own them to mm. understand and own them. And it's a game. It's purely a game with me, but it's nonetheless manipulation. That's a major trait. And that, uh, I have to always think about it every day, just as much as Oprah has to think about her diet every day, just mm. like addict. It's almost like an addiction. You have to, whenever you see yourself doing it, you have to go, no, 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 do what a good guy would do. That's what I do, because mm. it doesn't go away. It's every day, and it's like a constant fight, yeah. Constant, yeah. It's a constant drive to irresponsible manipulation of people, and you know, throw putting on the charm, you know. And so I try not to be charming. Not that I'm charming here at all, but I mean, or to be so glib to and, and to be open about it and mm. to to control that. Uh, but so there are people who can control it enough, right? And there are enough assholes around that you don't have to be a psychopath to be avoided. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> real, but there's a lot of just jerks who are not clinical, and it, and fundamentally they're probably I would I think one out of ten people are jerks, and mm. various ways, and maybe one or two out of ten of those are either have NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, or antisocial personality disorder, roughly equivalent to psychopathy, and with those people, uh, usually I. You know, somebody is too helpful, too friendly, you know, too charming, too much of a good thing, uh, too interested in you. Let's talk about you. Let's not talk about me. <laughs> Let's talk about you. I and love this. As soon as I see that, and I can see, I'll be sitting at a bar, and I'll hear some guy saying, no, and she'll be sitting there going, oh, really? That's so interesting. No, they very quickly become interested, the women, because finally I've met a man who cares about me. And, wants to, uh, 
that's like a red flag, like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I mean, if I was, uh, uh, it doesn't mean you have to be wary of people, everybody, because there are people that are just nice guys, but there yeah. is like me. <laughs> and two with you know all of that that would be the first thing and <laughs> especially if they keep doing it and usually people who are honest will let themselves go they'll say well goddamn, that pissed me off they'll do something mm. to alienate you in an honest way that's usually a good sign yeah but it's not a good sign in somebody who's very smart psychopath because they'll do it merely because they know you're looking for that right Mm, yeah. <laughs> so some of these guys that the kind of leaders that I meet with and talk to, they know this, so they'll pull that manipulation acting, or they'll say, Okay, I lied about that. And they're just making up that thing to get more confidence <laughs> in you because you're reading it. You see what I mean? Some yeah. guys and gals spend their whole life concentrating on reading you to see if you're a smart psychopath or people who know. And they, they, so they adjust their behavior to keep fooling you no matter how smart and hip you are. Mm, that, that, that's advanced manipulation here. So. Yeah, manipulation <laughs> where the game players. And of course, part of the deal is, you know, you can imagine when two dictators getting together, Stalin and Hitler, uh, getting together to manipulate each other. This is what they're doing. Right? Yeah. When they get down to it, they're going to say, I'll kill I'm going to mess you up. And so anyway, um, you know, I, wor I work with that. This reminds me, uh, one of my students was a gang leader uh, from uh, New York, and he, very bright guy, but he was, he ran drugs, and he was the head of a gang in L.A., but he was so smart, and he wanted to go clean, and they sent him to me. The people, the advisors sent him, he said, go to Fallon, because he's like, he knows how to handle us, and he was... He called him. He called me boss, and he was the underboss. He was. He was like he, everything was like in terms of a gang or mafia with him. Mm. Brilliant guy, and he would go make deals between our labs. He was always making deals, and when he talked to him, very smart, talk fast, very manipulative, talk, talk, very but sweet and sort of. Uh, and I, you know, I knew that he knew that I knew, right? <laughs> He's doing it, and I said, "You just have to use it for good purposes, okay? It's not you have to stop doing it. You have to." And he did that, and he was very productive. And he finally, one summer, he left the lab. He went back home in L.A., and I got the call from uh, from his lawyer that he was in for a huge heroin bust. And he and he and I said, and I told him you fucked up. I said, how could you do this? Well, he did. It's time for three years. He got out. I asked the judge to keep giving him books and projects all through when he was incarcerated. And he came out and he came back. And then the university said, are you sure you want to take this guy back? So I, I did it because I believed in his ability. And, and I knew, you know, well, it was a good thing because he went on. Uh, he became an attorney. He's very successful. He, he became an attorney. Yeah, crazy. You know, and he's uh, one of the best uh, patent attorneys in New York. And he's completely clean. And he finally changed. So there are people who can take these urges uh, and uh, even though many, you can't rehabilitate them. You know, psychopaths, so he was not, I don't think, a categorical psychopath, but he had some of the traits of this that he used as a game just for fun. He was bored, you know? And he was mm. so smart. And so, many, so he used them, so I didn't think he was a categorical psychopath. He wasn't. 
And those people who are more sociopathic uh, can be, you know, helped with a second chance. But full-blown psychopaths, forget it. Maybe you, you can help them. Not that I know of. <laughs> and I know that people claim to, but I've, I've, I've yet to see it. Crazy. Everybody, everybody can make a New Year's resolution. Mm, uh, yeah, for, for one week and or two. Everybody goes clean. I'm never going to do that again. And three <laughs> to rape and murdering again. Baby, I mean, trust me on this. I will never. T- <laughs> one, one person, uh, <clears throat> I was asked to do an interview uh, to give you a real example. Yeah. To do uh, with the uh, uh, PBS, you know, NPR radio, you know, mm-hmm. radio in the United States. And and one of the researchers, well-known psych, psycho, psychopath researchers with criminals, said to come and interview me because he was rehabilitating people, right? And he said, well, you got to talk to Fallon, Jim Fallon, because he doesn't believe this can be done. And so the, uh, the journalist showed up at my house and you know, the last, second last interview was with me. And then the next day going up to L.A. to meet with this guy who had been cured. He was out of He'd been treated. He was out of prison. He was married. So she was going to go up and talk to him. He was the success case. Of, See, you can you can help a 20 or 22-year-old psychopath out of prison. And uh, and I had to give him my reasons why. And she, as she's interviewing me, she gets a call from the guy's wife. And, and, and the, the journalist said, uh, the interview is over. He says, I'm not doing the story. I said, why? Well, his wife just calls. He's back in prison. Uh, yesterday, he beat me up. He put me in, in the hospital, and he's back in prison for good. You know, he was good for about six months, but then mm-hmm. And, you know, with psychopaths, they can be very good for a while. They all have, like, many of them have a cycle where they'll go on these sprees of psychopathy and mayhem and then be very good for three months, six months, and two years. And it's almost like a, an addictive rhythm in, in many ways. Yeah, that's, that's a saying that I really like. Um, and it goes something like this. People default to their defaults. So, yeah. That, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is true. There is, and there's double defaulting on this. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I had my wife keeping me on the straight and narrow. You know, and my kids and my grandkids, everybody knows now, so become a kind of a game but if whatever i start to waver a little bit they give me that (laughs) (laughs) so um let's switch gears here a little bit because um you 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 told uh you 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 have spoken a little bit about that you have done extensive research on on dreams or dreaming so could you please speak to that because i think it's also like quite interesting yeah the uh uh, back in the uh, 90s, especially, and, and a little into the early 2000s, I was working with some psychiatrists and also uh, an anesthesiologist where we we're putting people under different levels of anesthesia, the kind that you have. Mm. And then reading back to them um, words that they were told during their being deep under anesthesia. And they thought it was just a memory task, but it was really uh, a task two weeks later coming back, having PET scans done and having the task to check for implicit versus explicit memory. Explicit memory is like, you know, that you, I, I remember I did that. I know that I remember mm-hmm. 
like you and I are having an explicit conversation now. Our, our dorsal prefrontal cortex is talking to each other, our executive functions, and we know that we're talking. There's another level of implicit stuff going on between us. Like, what is he thinking? What is, where do I go? What is this really going mm. Different levels of these communication and thought. But then there is stuff that happens that's implicit memory, which are things that you are in your memory, but you don't even know you remember them. And so we mm. to bring those memories out. And this ended up horrifying the anesthesiologist because he realized that all these surgical patients that he thought were deep under and weren't hearing or remembering anything, you know, because the surgeons and the anesthesiologists during surgery say awful things because they're just joking around, staying loose. And they're, they're remembering it. They say, holy Jesus, they, they're, they're hearing and remembering this stuff, but they don't know it, but it's internal. It's the, mm. So that got us uh, also working. I started working uh, in parallel with another group that was looking at REM sleep. And, the, and, and it turns out, can you use REM sleep as a way of diagnosing or looking into the brain. So we did fMRI, functional MRIs of the brain, not, not PET scans this time, but fMRIs, uh, with EEGs and eye movement and monitor their sleep. And we did this for oh, 16 years, a long-term experiment, and then we started publishing on it. And, you know, in, in, and out of this came something very interesting. And uh, it, it appears like when, you know, usually what we think of as dreams is that our dreams are kind of a replay, an emotional replay of what happened that day. Mm. Something happens that was emotionally disjointing or, you know, didn't fit with our regular experience and our memory, our long-term memory but also our emotional world, then that night we, we have, could have a nightmare about it or some weird dream that rearranges that experience because it's always weird and somehow tries to fit it into uh, a reality, right? And so it's how to, how to refix that experience that day. What we found out is that it turns out that the same areas of the brain that you use while you're awake and perceiving things are the same things involved in dreams. You can almost not tell the difference unless you look really close and then you realize that the parts of those same areas of the brain that are active during REM sleep and during awake sleep, it's different layers of those areas of cortex. And one area is involved in what's called feed-forward information. You know, it's feed-forward, those images. And one layer, group of layers, is in the feedback. So you have this iterative loop of feedback, feed forward looping of this information, of these worlds. And what it looks like is that your dream world that night is more a prediction of tomorrow. It is a virtual reality imaging of your tomorrow. And so this was a big... I think this is mind-blowing, yeah. It just was so counterintuitive. And it's like, what God, what do we have here? And, mm. and the way of predicting, of course, there were some memories involved of the former things, but that there was this prediction of what's happening tomorrow. And then when tomorrow came, that's when they would adjust each other by looping back and forth to correct the errors, so to correct the errors of what we predicted so that you're, by the end of the day, this new reality is there of what your experiences are, your memories, what 
what what today's experiences was and how you learn from them. So it turns out that your this it's kind of your dreams are like this virtual reality movie of tomorrow. And uh, so it's really so we're publishing. We published several articles on this. I'm working on one right now um, on a, a new one coming out. So uh, we have you know I have a series of these and. Um, so it's quite interesting. Yeah, and and what do you think is the the, the takeaway here for our listeners? Um, yeah, speaking on, on on dreams. Well, you know, there are a lot of people that don't even realize that they had dreams. They don't remember. My wife mm. never remembers any dreams, uh, but it's implicit with her. You know, uh, with me, I train myself because I was always had wild dreams. I, you know, and I so I uh, always took notes. I remember all my dreams. And in one dream, well, I convinced her was I had a dream of her and I was in a German Bavarian beer hall, beer garden in the back. And I met up with three angels. And it's when she first she first realized that I loved her, really, really loved her was from the dream. Mm. So I have you know, lucid dreams. So it's almost in control of them. And they're very vivid and lucid. And and so you can embrace it and you can help train yourself into keeping track of your dreams if you want to. And it's a fun thing. So there's a, a practical thing there. But the way I did it, it seems to work, is uh, I always had a piece of paper next to my bed. So when I woke up in the night, I always wrote down dreams. It was much mm. when I woke up in the morning. And now I had the computer uh, always you know, there and I would type up. You know, so I saved my dreams and monitor. So you can practically train yourself to really live that other life. And it's and if you know enough about what dreams tell you, and perhaps not just your prediction, but your fears of tomorrow, then you can uh, tap into your emotional world better, I think. And your, you know, your own fears and what your deep desires are. What is your deep How desire? would this look like? How would this look like? How would it look like? I mean, in terms yeah. of... Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, what do you mean, how would it look like? You know, how would it... How would it play uh, yeah, out? yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, this has taken years for me to do. It's not. Oh, okay. It's yeah. Not, Ten you know, steps here. <laughs> you know, your mind and your dream world also lies to you because it's filled with fears. It's mm. filled with unmet desires. And so you have this play going on, this weird play, all right? And embedded in it are these unrealistic uh, aspirations and unfounded fears mixed in and they are confusing this movie going on right there and and in doing so you know being aware of them you say aha i'm really worried about that i'm i i am having this dream probably because i'm worried about my child you know how they're doing or i'm worried about my own success this 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 weekend so you know that sort of thing to give a hint on if you're emotionally um, sort of charged or set, you know, when you get these, especially um, with, you know, with nightmares. Now, I also have flying dreams, which are the most wonderful things. I've I've flying dreams for forever, and they're just, I wouldn't give them up for anything. They're just fantastic. And, you know, during that time, they're always associated with, for me, success and and, uh, good times. And so, Different parts of dreams, it starts to create a story. The second part of your life, which is your dream world, can form another part. I'm not <laughs> discovering anything new here, right? But I'm just, I mean, yeah. 
practically I use this and people can use this to monitor their emotional world, what really bothers them, what they really want, what they may fear for themselves and others are close to them. And uh, I think it started very young during the nuclear age, nuclear bomb age in the Cold War. When I was a kid, I always had, I always had uh, nightmares, dreams, really, of atomic bombs going off mm-hmm. and, and, and tornadoes, you know, big storms. But it turns out I love them. I, you know, I, I enjoy them. So it wasn't, it was a fear, but it was like the boogeyman. It was like a, a scary movie that you want to play over because it tickles you in a certain way. <laughs> I, uh, I got a call from Eli Roth, who's a filmmaker. He's the one who was, uh, uh, you know, did in, 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 in Glorious Bastards. He was the. Oh, the, yeah. The Very the, popular movie. Yeah, and uh, and he also makes all these snuff films, these terrible, terrible films. So he contacted, he wanted to be testing. Since all of his whole production company is, uh, said that he acts like a psychopath, and so I did these tests on him. We did a show, a Discovery Channel show, on testing him, and I said, "Don't tell me anything about you." I only knew him because I'm part of. SAG, you know, Screen Actors Guild, because I've acted. It was kind of a joke. I've acted in film, and I'm not an actor, but I've acted in film and TV. Mm. And so I get to vote every year in these films, and Glorious Bastards are there, and I saw this guy. I said, this is a great acting job. So I voted for him. I didn't know who he was. That was the only thing I knew, is that he was a good actor. He, and after we broke the code, after testing him with fMRI and genetics and all this stuff, uh, he says, do you know who I am? I said, yeah, you're that actor you're the bear Jew. He goes, no, 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 no. He says, I make all these films. And I said, the reason I, I got, I had my agent contact you is because all the people who work with me, uh, think, um, uh, you know, a psychopath. Well, it turns out as I was looking through his genetics and his scans mm. and showing him, uh, you know, images of very disturbing things, it was clear that he was kind of liking it. And so when I went through and tried to diagnose him, you know, which was the yeah. of the show of the, uh, um, I said, well, this is what's going through your mind. I said, I know you, while you're making these films, you're kind of a psychopath who is treating himself. Mm. A kid will treat themselves with uh, seeing scary movies. And he, he came over to my house after, after the film, he goes, it's exactly it. He said, and he calls his father uh, from my house, first said, can I have a beer? He says, I don't drink, but I need a couple of beers. And he, he, right after the film, he, he called his father, who was a psychiatrist from Harvard. And he said, Dad, you were right all along. This guy just tested me. You were right all along. <laughs> <laughs> he showed me his pictures of his bar mitzvah, and he had two red candles with, you know, like blood dripping during his bar mitzvah. And he was always, always fixated, like me, with these kind of violent images. But that was his way, because otherwise he's very charming, sweet guy. He doesn't do anything, you know. But <laughs> so in a way, your dreams, you can think of them as self-medication, understanding your, the way you self-medicate. Mm. It's a life. Yeah. So, um, Jim, before we wrap this up, because um, at the end, I always ask I'm uh, every... Man. I'm having a good time. I'm not going to... Awesome. Me. Awesome. <laughs> because I have a couple of questions left, so... Awesome. So, um, 
So one of them being like, let's talk about serial killers, because um, I think that so, so many people are fascinated by serial killers. There are like so, so many true crime podcasts, TV shows, Netflix shows on the Internet, and, and people love them. So um, what have you learned um, yeah, about serial killers on your, while doing this, this research and, and stuff like that? So. The first thing I found out was what Simon Mirren, who's a showrunner of Criminal Minds, told me. Mm. He said, he, and, and I, he asked me to, you know, um, to act in one of the films. It was the 99th episode. And, and it's played all over the world. I still get checks for it. It was episode 99 called Out Fox. And because he saw my TED talk, he goes, I know what you're talking about. You're talking <laughs> about violence in these neighborhoods around the world and, and the you know, all over the world where kids are seeing violence all the time and they become triggered and all this stuff. And mm. so he did. And it was about that. It's very quick study. His, his aunt is uh, Helen Mirren. But anyway, we, he and I become really good friends. It's been nine years, 10 years. But at any rate, on that, he uh, I, I, he brought me around to talk to the, uh, everybody in the studio and the production company. And he goes, don't talk to these people because he said, these are the writers and they'll steal your ideas. He says, they're talking to you because they want to steal your ideas because they don't have any ideas. So they just, and and I made the mistake of talking to him. I, 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 I I'm a professor. We're supposed to spill the beans. We say everything. And he goes, no, he says, everybody's going to spill the beans. And this, you know, Siskel and Ebert. Well, Siskel, he wrote an article uh, uh, about five, six years ago. He said, well, this Jim Fallon guy created this whole genre, this whole meme of the psychopath the psychopath professor, the psychopath, you know, smart guy. And he said, this is the guy who created it with me. Because I talked to all these writers of different shows uh, at, you know, Sundance, Tribeca, film festivals in Europe. And I, the people I talk to, I see that they come up with these shows. And I say, I talked to that guy. And it's like the shows that I, you know, in, in my, it drives my wife crazy. He says, because... She said, you know, they just steal your ideas. I said, these are all the things you've been talking about. So all these shows on psychopathic killers, yeah. these quotes, they're almost verbatim of, for my talks or my conversation. Mm. It's not that other people couldn't come up with this, but but me, but I talked to them, you know. So I'm so I kind of created this monster of, uh, of of putting words into the mouths of these actors and without getting paid for it, by the way. Um, so at any rate, that's one thing I learned. The second thing is that they realized that the way they were characterizing psychopathic killers was wrong, you know, for many years. Very few people got it right. And it was always the snarling guy with bad teeth. And yeah. <laughs> this person exactly would never be a psychopath. I mean, because everybody wants to hate those guys. It's like people want to, they want Donald Trump to be a psychopath. There's never <laughs> a psychopath who talks like Donald Trump. <laughs> they talk like, like, like I said, Bill Clinton. I love you, baby. Look, he pisses people off. There are no psychopaths that say that is like completely frank like that. So, but they want to. So they think anybody they don't like is a psychopath. And these people are very susceptible to psychopaths because they will fall for a Bill Clinton or somebody else, a real psychopath. Mm. You know, I love you, baby. But, <laughs> and so these. So these characters, because they became more and more hip, the writers became more and more realistic about, you know, now that uh, I did a show with Brian Cranston, the head actor of 
you know, Breaking Bad. And mm, yeah, very, very famous guy. So he and I spent time together and I did a show with him, a panel with him, and also with, uh, with the, the head of the showrunner from Sopranos and Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, I love the Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what a great so show. Bad did not have real psychiatric characters. So I used that uh, to get, you know, like teach, you know, writing classes, you know, when I'm asked to come in for writing classes for screenplays, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he really, Brian Cranston, he goes, he says, none of us are like real psychiatric. He goes, I don't know. I said, but it's a great show and you're a great actor outside. Well, we've given talks together on this stuff and they're getting better at it. The problem is that true psychopaths make for terrible characters because, you know, one of the fundamentals of filmmaking or, you know, character making is there has to be a center of good in them. So for mm. the way you make the Godfather a hero or an anti-hero even is his center of good. There's some, he's, a, he's a psychopathic killer, but his center of good is that he loves his family. Yeah. Everybody can gravitate, so there's part of us that love that. Well, in fact, a lot of psychopaths don't even have that, so they're not real psychopaths. They're just sociopaths. Big difference. So even the psychopaths... Sorry to interrupt here, but but what is like the key difference here between a a psychopath and sociopath? The psychopaths know what they're doing is is morally... The psychopaths don't think what they're doing is morally wrong. They don't have a sense. Mm, Okay, okay, yeah. Sense of mark. That's they a key difference. Okay. They understand rules like ethics of society. They don't want to be caught, but they um, they don't really in their heart think that it's evil. It's like, well, it should be done or it doesn't matter. It's like a parking. Yeah, thing. you said you said it in the in the beginning of our conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, psychopaths don't really show remorse at all. Mm. They don't show when they're caught. They don't show any anxiety. It makes them very mm. difficult to get because when they're in it interviewed by their police or their wife and he goes no it wasn't me and they're believable because they they don't have any tells that's the whole Mm -hmm. point yeah totally get it no whereas a sociopath is somebody and everybody has a different definition i'll tell you the ones we use the sociopath understands right from wrong a sociopath has remorse and a sense of guilt Mm -hmm. and acts very nervous when they're caught uh, but a sociopath mm-hmm. is usually a pissed-off young loser, almost always. And so what you get are parents. And so we had what were the belt, Beltway snipers in the United States some years ago. And I know the guy, the FBI, BAU guy who caught them, finally, mm-hmm. but because uh, we worked together. And, um, and one guy, the older guy, was the psychopath who never pulled the trigger. The young guy was the young psych- sociopathic loser trying to get even with the world, and he's the one that's doing the killing. There were murders in Texas exactly like that. Charlie Manson's family, he was a psychopath. But all those people were the kids. They tried to make them out to be normal kids. They weren't. They were, you know, really drug addicts. They were prostitutes. And there were young losers who were pissed off at the world. And these are going to get even. So you find this in terrorist groups where the oldest person is a psychopath, very manipulative and everything. And is trying to get something for you know, create a world, whereas the young guys are pissed off losers who are going to get even with the world. Mm. Those people can be rehabilitated, but the psychopaths can't. And mm. so there's this this difference. So you can have a psychopath, and the psychopath can have a sense of uh, connection with family and everything. 
So most of what you see as these psychopath, these killers, psychopathic killers, are really sociopaths because they always have some sweet emotional empathetic connection with people. Mm. Special person. Whereas a psychopath that does not have this. Yeah. Incapable of this. They can make believe they have it, but they don't. So that's a big difference. So um, a real psychopath you could, is like a, a great white shark. There's no sense of empathy, emotional empathy there. They're just predators. So they make for terrible characters because you cannot, there's no way you can connect with them. You can't make them a hero or an anti-hero. Like, mm, oh, because they don't have the, the good side in them. Yeah. There's nothing there. So, yeah. and, and I told these writers this in the short run, as I said, you'll never get there because once you show them, these are going to be extremely unlikable. You're not, and people won't even hate them. They will just be like, you know, a, a dangerous fish or something. Mm. Stay away from them. But they're, you, can't, you can't, it's hard to get emotional about them because they have no, there is no real emotion there. Uh, mm. Emotion, but it's so, you know, it's ramped down low and they get mad. But oftentimes they don't really even get angry that much. So that makes for storytelling with true psychopaths difficult. So, 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 what you are saying here is that people throw the word psychopath like way too easily around, right? First of all, they usually use it for any leader that they don't like. Personally. Yeah, <laughs> everybody's a psychopath nowadays, I guess. Like, that's easy. The second thing is they confuse the psychopath for sociopath. And also they fail to see that there are normal people that simply disagree with their worldview. Hmm. And so, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, the sense of internationalism, nationalism, tribalism, family, you know, or the sense of connectedness emotionally or not. These are all normal things, normal traits. But if you have a combination of these things, Uh, they don't are not like you. You think people are psychopathic and they're completely normal. They just uh, you're just being unreasonable and you're being mm. intolerant. You're being personally fascistic. This is what fascists do. They're intolerant. And so uh, a lot of people who call people psychopaths who are not who just disagree are themselves fascists. Mm. They're not Nazis, but they're fascists. Fascists, you can be left wing fascist, right wing fascist. Well, fascism is a militant, intolerant person and, and judgmental. And, and so for many people who you simply disagree with them, they're intolerant of you. And that's that's really most of society that's of concern because the yeah. number of predators on the loose are not that many. You know, the chances mm. of running into them are not great unless you're some susceptible person who's so desperate for love and attention that you'll You'll be walking around looking for anybody to compliment you. Thousands of people that get it. And I, you know, interviewing psychopaths and sociopaths and pedophiles, you know, I, I interviewed a whole family of them, where the father and the mother were. And the father was dead at that point. And two brothers and a sister. The sister wasn't, but the two brothers were. One brother was a sociopath, one was a psychopath. And they told me about how they would look as predators, how they would look for the little girl or the little boy that was very susceptible because they didn't go after everybody. They would single out one out of a hundred kids who walked a certain way, acted very vulnerable or the young girl who looked like they needed love and needed affection, needed something. That's who they go for. And so they're very specific on their, as predators of who they go after. Just think of how a, 
Very intelligent, it seems to me, yeah. But they can sense it, too, because they have an innate sense, just like an animal. Predators, you know, wolves have this. Uh, Mm. Predator birds, predator animals, they will seek out the weak, either physically, but also just... Mm. So, uh, you know, learn not to be so susceptible, because they don't go after strong people. You know, they just don't. And, and, uh, And so, even though they're out there... The chances are, if, you know, that they're never going to bother you because unless you give off these signals. Mm, it, unless you give off like a, a weak I, vibe, I, like you have I, this slouch. I, and, I need love. I'm a, mm, innocent. I'm, I need, uh, I'm naive. They, they're looking for weak people. Yeah. And, can be, and I have, fe- you know, female professors, very highly educated, who are like this. They make it, So it's not a matter of IQ or, or education. Hmm. They just don't have a sense of it. Uh, they don't have a sense of survival, and they're suckers for this stuff. <laughs> it's quite. It's so 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 right. so interesting. Yeah, yeah be, because I think like the the media has like a completely completely false conception well, of this topic. I just yeah. you know, I just watching the news. <laughs> I, the news is whatever news, and I'm just I'm like, I'm, my eyes are like saucers going. You gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> exactly opposite to every, you know, it's really true. And you see, the explanation takes a long time, and it's not a soundbite. And, mm, and not at all, yeah. Brain function and dysfunction are not like that. There isn't a center of evil. There are all these checks and balances of regulators and inhibitors, and it's this very, very complicated machine. So by the time you explain it, people are asleep. Mm. You, you can't do it in seven seconds. But no. Maybe in two hours, this. Maybe there's some useful stuff uh, we talked about. <laughs> so, so what I would love to hear is, um, what are the current problems that we haven't explored yet on psychopaths? Well, you know, from the beginning, and from the time of my, actually my TED talk and the moth talk and everything about nine years ago, my 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 whole motivation was to show. Um, that there are places in the world where children are seeing day in and day out abuse, bullying, violence mm. in the world, uh, whether it's the Gaza, whether it is, you know, in L.A., it could be in Amsterdam. There are different uh, places in every city in the world, different neighborhoods where the kids are constantly seeing that. And they're becoming, the first of all, the idea is that young girls are going to be attracted to tough guys and they're going to be mm. with tough, violent guys just to save their own ass. So there's the breeding part. But beyond that, the genetic part is that those of them that naturally have inherited the genetics that are consistent with personality disorders, psychopathy, uh, they're going to be abused early and be abandoned because of no fatherhood. And I, I had conversations with the head of you know, Black Lives Matters over this because of mm. the history of slavery, what it really means, and the history, even I talked about it in Russia and Ukraine, too, and Oslo, about the history of the Tsarist Russia and the, you know, the hundreds of years of abuse, and that it works itself into the epigenetics of the society, so that after several generations, there are more and more of these triggered warriors to be, if you will, who are psychopathic. 
And these these warrior societies, it's not a it's not like a heroic, wonderful thing. It's very dangerous. And mm. my idea was to show um, uh, people like belligerent leaders of belligerent groups, if you will, um, that they're just going to destroy themselves because anybody can say war is bad, guns are bad, all this bullshit. Uh, only it's only when people and leaders groups think that it's their survival is going to be compromised that they will think twice about creating violence and mayhem because the first thing they always do is, is kill themselves. They they kill others, but they kill themselves always. always. So that was the key message, the subliminal message. I didn't say this because whenever you want to give a message, you never give the message, right? It's always got to be subliminal over and over again. And see, that's exactly what Simon Mirren got for Criminal Minds. He goes, I know what you're talking about. Because he's a storyteller, and he knows that the story's about not what the story's about, you know? Mm. And he got that. So, um, and other people have gotten it. So I've met with CEOs, billionaires of, of, of corporations, and I said, we got to do this study. I, I did it with, I'm working with the Vatican, and we did it with the working with our Pentagon. Um, you know, to do studies, how to show this, that you can, you can, you can epigenetically change whole groups of people. And if you do it for three or more generations, you've now got a really troubled, violent group of people and it won't go away. You can change the socioeconomic political system and it'll stick around for generations. And, um, and so that's the real message, but I try not to say it because it's too long, and usually when you tell people something, it sounds preachy. You want them to discover things themselves, and you know, mm. as a journalist, you know this yourself that you try to say things not sneakily but subliminally, so people will discover this point. Mm. And 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 why is that so that you can't change it after a certain point? Well, because this you get what are called transgenerational epigenetic modifications of those genes. Now, what happens... What, what does that mean? I, I don't know. So. Okay, for example, it was really first found in the Swedish famine of the 1900s and then the Dutch famine during World War II, right before World War II. Those two famines ended up that the grandchildren, and it depended whether it was the grandsons or the granddaughters or the great-grandsons or great-granddaughters of those people who went through those famines, well, they ended up either with addictions or they ended up with obesity. And uh, even though they weren't eating a lot, so they, you know, eating so much, they, you know, thin people can burn, a lot of thin people can just burn off calories, whereas fat people save them. Well, it looked like those epigenetic marks, those methylation marks on the genes regulating appetite and metabolism were changed. Now, this makes sense because the experience of, the, of all that, famine was that, okay, listen, you babies, you're being born into a world without food. So save everything up as fat that you can. So way to survive personally and the species. Same thing with being born into a violent neighborhood over and over again. What does that baby's brain see? That orbital cortex, the temporal lobe, at two or three, four years old, it says, I'm born into a violent world. The best thing I can do, my brain can do. You're not thinking this, but your kind of your genes are epigenetically thinking this way. The best way to survive is to be a violent myself. So it's a survival thing, and it's a way to su survive. Mm. And this is what I told the, you know, I told the head of Black Lives Matters, and he had mentioned to me. He goes, maybe I get you on the board. I said they're not going to want some old white dude on the board of Black Lives. Matters. 
<laughs> <laughs> and he came back and he basically said, no, we don't want any old white guy in there. But it's about, you know, why would, you know, there's a reality in, in America. You know, you yeah. have all the blacks around the world who don't have this, but in America and in places where there was slavery for 300 years, that you have inner city blacks who are the great, great grandchildren of them have a predilection toward violence. You can try to t- talk this away, but it's not due to poverty. It just seems to be a higher thing, and it makes sense. Uh, mm. You can show this, that what has happened is not so much personal experience, but it's 300 years of slavery, just like 300 years of the czarist rule. It's, it has nothing to do with being black. And That's so interesting, this, this whole topic, yeah. Use. And this is how you key to survive, you know? It's, you know... How can you make Jews tough enough to survive all the abuse that they, you know, had over the millennia? And, and, mm. and there is, it seems, a natural way where this is done by this transgenerational epigenetic marking. And it can happen for metabolism, you know, for, for weight and for eating. Uh, and also it seems to be true for violence. So that's the message uh, that I try to give now. Very predictably, some of these CEOs who I, you know, I, I go to their meetings, a lot of their interesting meetings, like Google and otherwise, and I'll meet with the CEOs and they're like, they go, that is so important for world peace because they're interested in world. And I said, well, this is what it'll cost. And to them, the cost is nothing. And I said, but you're going to go back and talk to your attorneys. You're going to talk to your human resources. You're going to talk to the rest of the guys and gals on your board. And they're going to say, no fucking way. We're going to support this thing on how to understand psychopathy and narcissism. And how it creates, you know, never-ending violence because mm. they don't be associated with it. It's like trying to get funding for it to, to understand psychopathic killer. Nobody, no company, nobody wants to be associated with it. Not because mm. may get them off, just because the name of your company is associated with it. Yeah, Kellogg's won't do it. <laughs> nobody will do it. And so, hardest yeah. thing about it, yeah. 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 Well, okay. Great. Great meeting and talking with you, and maybe we'll we'll meet in a dark alley somewhere. <laughs> awesome. Could, 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 could you please tell everybody where can they find you on the social webs, connect with you, and so on and so forth? Yeah, in a dark alley or a bright uh, bar. Now they can yeah. find me. They can go to. See, you didn't laugh at that. You really want to. Time is short here. Um, they can. Uh, they can go to. Uh, they put James Fallon, Google mm. James Fallon, and uh, you can Google it for just my articles, and then you can Google it for uh, videos, about hundreds of videos on there, and images. So just put James Fallon. Got it. And, J- uh, and you want just the psychopathy stuff, because I do a lot of other work, research. Yeah. Um, you put James Fallon, psychopath, and you can, there's a whole bunch of different things recent. You know. Got it. Uh, Jim, so so um, do you have not not uh, five quick uh, five five minutes for those five questions that I ask every guest at the end? It's very 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 short. F- five quick questions. Do I have the time? Let's see. I don't know what they are, but let's try. Okay. Um, the first is um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? The greatest book was an art book by Leonardo da Vinci. Yep. Which convinced me about the, uh, the 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 wisdom of becoming a generalist and being involved in all sorts of fields of knowledge. Mm. Second one was Flowers for Algernon, which was the novel 
that was the basis for the movie Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-Y, that I saw when I was 18 in college, that inspired me to go into neuroscience, because in it showed a very primitive experiment of a of a rat, giving rats these you know neurotransmitters that made this rat brilliant, and with a parallel story about uh, uh, they call the retarded uh, young man uh, to show the biological and chemical basis of behavior. That's when I said, "Aha! That's what I want to be." Mm. Um, I think that. The third one is, I think those two just stand out because I've, I've read so many books. I read, and I've read many, many classics. You know, Plato is great, uh, and, and uh, Aristotle not so much. But I mean, there are classics. Uh, but I would say, well, there are just too many because I read all the time, and it's just I think that my favorite book is all of them. You know, mm. it's 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 whatever book is in front of me that I'm I'm getting into, uh, and you know I even like things like uh, Lord of the Rings. I love that whole that whole business. Although I try to stick with nonfiction, I I love those fantasies too. And so it's every book I'm reading, whatever book I'm reading at the time, plus those other two. Got it. So the second out of the five question is: What are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Well, Charlie, um, as I mentioned back in 1968, because it impacted my life so much, uh, or my life course. I, I think, uh, you know, the classic great ones that I really like, uh, if you ask me, if, is this my favorite movie? I would say no, but I watch it all the time. Mm. I, Jeremiah Johnson. I just love that film. And um, so I, because I watch it all the time, and I'm drawn to it, it must be one of my favorite films, even though I would never admit it. Mm. I, th I think Godfather 2 is like everybody. Yeah. It's my, you know, Godfather 2 being Sicilian background. And when I saw it, my grandmother and grandfather were still alive. My grandmother uh, watching them, the two of the young lovers walking in Sicily hand in hand with all the grandparents around, sitting with my grandmother, who was from that area. Exactly where you know near Corleone and Menti, and uh, uh, she started crying. She goes, "That's exactly what it was." So, watching that with my grandmother, Godfather too, was it made it a real treat because it was so much like the real world. And uh, okay, so those are the ones. <laughs> Got it. So the third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Well, you know the. The most important product for libertarians and for the world is the internet. Mm, got it. Far, there's nothing even close. And a free and open internet is the most important thing to democracy, freedom, and it is the answer to you know. So keeping a free uh, internet, um, World Wide Web, is by far the most superior thing that I have ever heard of that uh, invented. You know, interestingly, I've had my same email account. Since 1985. That's a long time. We're one of the first wired uh, universities in the world to have the whole the, the whole net. You know, I had a pine account, so I didn't know what to do with it. But you know, my the, some of my friends were very computer savvy. I was fairly computer savvy. They would be emailing each other back in the 80s. And they were having offices next to each other. I said we used to have a <laughs> and a coffee together. 
And now we're just doing this. I said, this is insane. Well, it's still insane. But anyway, <laughs> are the most important. So the fourth out of the five question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? Uh, well, the first one is I'm not such a great guy that I thought I was. The, the, uh, I think, you know, the personally, and I think that has helped how I behave, again, you know, with my wife and, and my friends and people, that it's improved my behavior to make me more livable, if you will. Mm. Even though I've been married, you know, a long time, I have a lot of the same friends. It can be difficult. So that has helped me because it's helped the people around me, who are close to me, my friends. And friends. Yeah. I think that was a realization and an acceptance. You know, you can realize I'm not accepted, but <clears throat> accepted it. Um. The other one, well, the realization that I always had, that has always amazed me, was my wife, who made her the most interesting person in the world to me, and still is, is very early on, from those 12, I realized that she had no need for immortality, that she was, even at 12, she, was, she went to Catholic school forever, too, but she was an agnostic, she didn't have a need to be immortal, she didn't have a need for a God. She didn't have a need for her own ego, which I found the most profound thing I've ever heard of. And she's still like that. I think the realization is that there really are people like that is the most amazing thing to me. It still is. So the last question for today is, Jim, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Don't change a thing. <laughs> Don't, don't change a thing. Don't change. No, no, no. no this, you know, uh, this is, you know, I really love my life, even though I've, you know, been not so nice to some people. But I think the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change everything. You know, I was born in a certain way with a certain prickly genetics and everything. But I was raised with such wonderful people, an extended family, and and I and I'm kind of a lucky psychopath, if you will. I'm not a full-blown psychopath, but I'm. I've been very fortunate, so I enjoy the luck that I had. So I, I was I was dealt genetically a weird set of dice, but I was also dealt these wonderful, this nuclear extended family was wonderful. And I've had a very interesting life. I mean, I think my wife stays with me because of all the interesting people that come by the house to meet with me you know, over the years still to this day, and a day in, week in, week out, these extraordinary people that come by that I work with, I think... Uh, She's able to tolerate me because I've been able to work with so many really fascinating people. Really, I guess you'd consider very famous people, but they come in the back door. And so um, and, and those people I work with. So I, I don't see how I give up anything. And I've, and I've mm. never really, really, really harmed anybody. You know what I mean? I've yeah. done it. Uh, in, in, and I've, it's always right up to the edge. And then I pull back without harming them. Um, and so, yeah, the answer is party on, Garth, because I've had a lot of fun, too. <laughs> so, Jim, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. It was uh, fun talking to you. So, Okay, Hardy, fun talking to you, too. See you, pal. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>